Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're here on the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Thursday, July 9th, 2020. It's approximately 11.07 Eastern AM Eastern Standard Time. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I am the director of We Be Imagining. I'm here with my co-host, Ilan Mandel. What's up, Ilan? Hey, Khadija. Uh, yeah, I'm Ilan Mandel. I use he, him, and I'm a PhD student at Cornell Tech. And today we have a special guest co-host, Simi. Hi, I'm Simi. Uh, I'm the journalist formerly known as Skanda Kavirgama. Um, you can check out my bylines at Truthout and other such websites. Pronouns? Oh, and yeah, of course, uh, my pronouns are she and her. And so I'm really excited today to get into um, conversation with Muhammad Janaid and Hafsa Kanjwal around the situation in Kashmir. I feel like one shortcoming of this first season of We Be Imagining is that we have not had enough um, coverage of international current events as it relates to policing, militarization, surveillance, and tech. Um, so beginning with Hafsa Kanjwal, she is a assistant professor of history at Lafayette. Is it Lafayette College or University, Hafsa? College. At Lafayette College, uh, her scholarly and research interests include South Asia, Kashmir, Islam, women's and gender studies, Islam in America, um, as well as Dr. Mohammed Janaid, who is an assistant professor of sociology, anthropology, and social work at MCLA, or Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. His research interests include the production of knowledge about South Asia, the centering of India in that knowledge, and the consequences for those who live in its political, social, and geographical margins. Um, informed important ways in important ways by lived experience in the U.S., India, and Kashmir. Um, so that's kind of like the professional academic bio for each of you. But I don't know if beginning with Hafsa, if you want to say a little bit more about yourself and your, your research as well. Sure, yeah. So um, as Khadija mentioned, I teach at Lafayette College. I was born in Kashmir, um, was there for the first few years of my life, and then I moved to the U.S. Um, and I, because I still have family there, I frequently go back um, almost every summer. And I spent my field work there, do, a year there during my Ph.D. work. Um, and I basically work on the post-partition uh, Jammu and Kashmir state. So I look at how um, a state are uh, like a state building occurs in the context of a occupied or disputed territory. Um, so I look at things like education, economic development, cultural reform, and how all of that is informed by um, kind of the hegemonic structure of occupation. Thank you. And Junaid, would you like to say a little bit more about yourself and your work? Uh, yeah, thank you, Khadija. Um, so I go by Junaid. Uh, I, I grew up in Kashmir. Uh, I went to school there and uh, then when I was like, I think 18, 19 years old, I left to study in Delhi, but, and then came to the US in 2008. Uh, I did my uh, PhD in cultural anthropology uh, in New York. Um, and I have been going back and forth, uh, both to visit family, um, friends, but also to do research in Kashmir. Um, uh, except for these last few years, um, when like things have kind of become very uncertain. I haven't been always able to go. Um, my research uh, broadly uh, started with uh, understanding um, the nature of post-colonial imperialism in South Asia, how India had inherited an empire from the British and how it was kind of transforming it into a centralized state. And uh, you couldn't 
you know, you had to understand that process uh, f uh, by looking at what was happening in Kashmir. So, and since then, I've been like, uh, you know, uh, using, uh, going into different aspects of um, how that uh, state building took place, uh, primarily looking at the question of uh, the spatial nature of Indian occupation in Kashmir, but also the development of um, this historical discourses of resistance among Kashmiri youth. Thank you for sharing that. And I know that I've told both of you the story multiple times, but my very, very first exposure to understanding the history and kind of the resistance in Kashmir was a teach-in at the War Resisters League that was put together by Simi. And what was really powerful for me in that moment is, I think I've heard you guys both twice, but at that first time, it was um, Amin Hussein from Decolonize This Place, and he was talking about growing up in Gaza, knowing about Kashmir. And when I heard all of these forms of militarization and policing that, that aligned and resonated with the experience of black people in America, I'm like, this is crazy. Nobody has any idea about this history. Like if I'm going to East New York to Bed-Stuy, generally, you know, this is anecdotal, but I, you know, largely I don't find that people are familiar with the situation in Kashmir. And yet it's one of the most militarized regions in the world. And at the same time, you know, this question of decolonization is not a metaphor. And so I don't want to just use the experience of Kashmir as some kind of vehicle to um, make points about what's going on in America. So maybe what would be helpful is if you could kind of share your first person experience or kind of lay out for us, you know, what does it mean when we say um, Kashmir is one of the most militarized regions in the world? And whether you want to start Junaid or Hafsa. Um, okay, so um, let me start by saying that um, you know, Kashmir definitely, uh, if you look at the absolute numbers, let's start with empirical evidence. Um, there are um, reports by um, independent organizations like JKCC, a coalition of um, civil society in Kashmir. Um, and there are there's research by scholars uh, who have kind of like come out with the number of 750,000 soldiers, Indian soldiers, active duty soldiers, plus the uh, paramilitary forces and the police forces who are actively involved in uh, counterinsurgency operations in Kashmir, they're all like placed, you know, hosted within this um, a small valley in the, in the Himalayas. Uh, and the ratio of soldiers and civilian population in Kashmir is closer to 1 to 10. For every 10 Kashmiri civilians, there is an armed Indian soldier. Um, if you go to Kashmir, um, you uh, you get out of the airport and you will see like five different places where there are soldier, you know, soldiers checking your luggage and, and stuff. And you go outside and it's just like this um, bizarre, absurd world of military checkpoints, camps, bunkers, um, you know, sniper nests. Um, I mean, according to India, they these forces are fighting an insurgency, uh, when in reality, the Indian government itself admits that uh, over the last decade, the number of the uh, the insurgents uh, it has been hovered between 100 to 200, uh, which means that the Indian government like, kind of literally fields around 5,000 soldiers for every single armed Kashmiri militant. Um, this is 
Uh, I mean, I mean, in comparison to this, look at uh, the height of U.S. occupation of Iraq in 2005, 6, 7, you know, during that surge period. Um, uh, at the height, uh, the U.S. had close to 170,000 uh, soldiers in Iraq. Uh, and the numbers of the insurgents in Iraq was uh, many, many times more than what is it is in uh, Kashmir. And the population size in Iraq was almost double that of uh, Kashmir. And so, uh, so uh, same with the area. Um, so you can already see that in actual numbers, uh, it is the, uh, it, Kashmir has the highest density of uh, militarization, highest density of armed soldiers um, controlling every aspect of Kashmiri life, surveilling every movement of Kashmiri life. And uh, the civilian population um, lives uh, primarily at the pleasure of uh, the counter counterinsurgency and the strategic needs of the Indian military. There is, uh, I mean, there have from time to time been so-called civilian governments, but uh, the civilian governments uh, are basically Indian bureaucrats who you know, prioritize the needs of the security establishment over the kind of uh, needs of the civilians. I mean, of course, they do not care about the rights of ordinary Kashmiris. Um, Kashmir, uh, I mean, you know, we talk about right freedom of expression here. We talk about, um, you know, uh, other freedoms like, you know, having basic necessities of life. In Kashmir, these are still, um, you know, long-term aspirations that have not been met. Kashmir, uh, it, I mean, people have been reduced to uh, struggling for survival, basically turned into what uh, Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher, called bare life. Um, so, I mean, and then you have this huge infrastructure that the Indian military has created where ability of people uh, to you know conduct their everyday life to move from one place to another to visit family neighbors uh, you know all the things that we take kind of for granted especially before you know the lockdown here for, because of the covid-19 um, but things we took for granted are uh, not available to uh, people in kashmir so um, you re you really have um, a, a strange kind of uh, you know, occupation, which is determined to minutely control um, um, Kashmiri public space. Yeah, to, to add to what Junaid said, I mean, um, looking additionally at other numbers, especially since the height of the armed rebellion in the late 80s and 90s, um, you know, there's been estimates of oh, almost 100,000 people being killed. Um, Eight to 10,000 people who've been disappeared, uh, meaning that up until now, nobody knows where they are, their families don't know. It's very likely that they've obviously been killed and put in mass graves, of which there are, again, about uh, 6,000 mass graves that were found. Um, and rapes and sexual violence that occurs at the, at the ha hands of the um, Indian military as well. Um, so there's, you know, almost every person in Kashmir will have some kind of a story related to this whole broad category of human rights abuses. Um, but besides that, there's just also what Junaid was talking about, like the everyday data life. I mean, just imagine looking, if you're sitting in your home right now and you just look around you and all you see are soldiers like every 10 or 20 feet. Um, fully equipped with, you know, guns and everything, and there's bunkers and there's checkpoints. 
And even just to get to school, you have to cross checkpoints, you're stopped, you're frisked, um, you're asked to take your ID or um, harassed, especially if you're a young male of a certain age, um, but really anyone. I mean, it's it's anyone at this point. Um, and one of the things that I've also been thinking about recently, especially because of the Settler Colonial Project, which we'll be talking about as well, um, is just the immense amount of environmental destruction this intense militarization has caused as well. Um, and the Indian Army just land grabs. I mean, they just take land over. Um, they place their bunkers or their settlements on it. Um, and it's had devastating impact on the ecology of, of an already kind of fraught uh, region as well. Um, so everything is essentially geared towards that militarized landscape. Um, and now we're going from that to one in which settlers, so you know what was an occupation is now going to be a settler colonial project where um, Indians from uh, you know India will be coming in and joining this existing militarized force. Um, so the consequences are really um, really uh, going to be quite drastic. And I wanted to say thank you very much for like, um, sort of setting a scene there. Um, I'm kind of also, I mean, in terms of like the level of occupation too, um, I'm wondering if you could also talk about how the sort of imagery of the occupation changed over time too, with the incursion of more surveillance technologies too. Uh, I remember um, one, you know, one remark made by, uh, Sanjay Kak at a, uh, uh, you know, sort of like a Kashmiri artist, uh, who I think, uh, Hafsa, you like put on this panel, um, at NYU, uh, talked about like, sort of like the amount of images that are produced, uh, of Kashmiris by like drones that are flying overhead as well as, uh, as the soldiers on the ground. Um, and then also like other, I think other sensory experiences of the occupation. Um, I remember at the teach-in, Khadija mentioned meeting you both. I think, Junaid, you said something along the lines of like the smell of tear gas in Kashmir is as ubiquitous as smelling urine in um, New York. So maybe if you could speak to more to like details like that. Um, yeah, I think that that's uh, my question in terms of like so far. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, that comment uh, I made uh, was, of course, uh, that summer of New York, and you know how New York used to be. I, I don't know how it is now, um, but um, tear gas definitely. You know, I I had left that summer in Kashmir, and um, when I was looking back from the airport, there was this low hanging cloud of tear gas hanging over Srinagar city. And my um, my daughter and I had been living in South Kashmir for that summer with my uh, with my parents. And uh, my daughter couldn't sleep at night, and she's like, you know, uh, she she's based here in the U.S. with me, um, and she couldn't tell what the smell was continuously. Why her? Although we were away from the sites where the Indian police was like, you know, firing tear gas shells, but you know, because it's a valley and it's surrounded by mountains, all of that kind of remains stuck um, in the air. And it just made me sad at that time. And I just like, she was like, she was saying at that time that it feels like, uh, you know, New York, except my eyes don't, uh, I don't cough so much in New York and my eyes don't water so much. Um, yeah, I think that uh, in in terms of, 
you know, the surveillance. Uh, the while there is surveillance, I, I think Hafsa can talk about the images and the drones. But I do want to remind you that uh, there is uh, most of the surveillance in Kashmir still happens, in uh, like in in terms of human surveillance. Like in the Indian government has uh, thousands upon thousands of paid spies, uh, networks of uh, spies. Many of them, uh, you know, uh, people who are. Um, who actually work with armed militants uh, and are like maybe double agents, sometimes like get paid to surveil armed activists, but also like people who are, uh, there's a cyber cell with the, in, in the Jammu Kashmir police, which is actively uh, and openly, very openly looking at uh, Facebook posts, Twitter feed. Um, they continuously keep sending uh, these requests to Twitter and Facebook in the U.S. to delete our accounts, to remove our content. Uh, and uh, sometimes, like, Facebook and Twitter has acceded to these requests as well. Um, and uh, so the, there's, like, a lot of uh, human uh, surveillance as well as social media surveillance that goes on in Kashmir. And, um, I mean, th this is yet, I mean, I, I just, I do need to say that Sometimes it feels like uh, these might not be such a such a huge qu question for ordinary Kashmiris who just uh, at this stage are struggling to really survive and you know are terrified with the prospects of what Hafsa just said uh, you know the the phenomena of settler colonialism facing us. Yeah, to add to that, I I think um, a lot of these countries, India, China, Israel, also learn from each other and. Um, I think we will see increasing, I mean, just in the past year alone, uh, there has been this phenomenon of drones, uh, flying overhead and surveilling neighborhoods, um, especially during protests, for example, they're trying to figure out where the young boys are coming from, where they're going, where they're hiding and so on. Um, so I think that is going to escalate and I wouldn't be surprised if other kind of facial recognition technologies or other things are also um, you know, solely introduced as well, if not already. I mean, one of the questions that I had, so there's a few interesting things here, is that sometimes the spectacularness of these technologies like facial recognition databases and drones um, obfuscate this kind of sleight of hand that we overwhelmingly, even in like Western industrialized nations like the United States, still rely on human capital. So like most of the information that informs police strategy still continues to come from like criminal informants of which there's like a web nationally, et cetera. Um, and then it's interesting, we had Andrea Miller come on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about drones and how they were their, their use was justified across the border because the wall um, can't expand 2,000 miles. But largely the drones don't even work because they, you know, different weather patterns interfere with them. Um, so there's kind of a sleight of hand where the, the implementation of this technology strikes a level of fear of, and a feeling of being in a panopticon, but at the end of the day um, is really like the larger surveillance apparatus in, in the form of human capital and physical soldiers that are there and the tear gas that you're smelling that is really um, policing the zone. But I guess one of my questions was that a natural parallel to me in thinking about um, Kashmir was the situation with the Uyghurs. However, they rely much more heavily on high-tech um, solutions. And there seems to be some kind of consensus in Kashmir that to invest, like, I, I don't have the number in front of me, but I believe you said there were 750,000 Indian soldiers. This is like a huge investment in human capital. 
And so I guess I want to better understand, is that calculus tied towards this domicile law and this land grabbing? Or what is kind of, to you, your understanding? What is the rationale behind that? I think the the presence of the army. So, you know, Kashmir has been under Indian colonization since 1947. Um, But at that time, the army was mostly at the border with Pakistan um, and the threat that it faced from Pakistan. Um, But it's only really when, and the resistance, the movement for self-determination, you know, started even before 1947, but continued. But it was only really when Kashmiris decided to take up arms that, um, you know, India decided that it needed to host such a huge, and because of of the massive levels of support that the armed rebellion got amongst the population, um, that, you know, that 750 number came in into neighborhoods. So I think that ideology was part of kind of this liberal, quote unquote, secular Congress um, ideology of kind of forcibly incorporating Kashmir and Kashmiris into the Indian state. And now we're dealing with um, something that is is a little bit different in that the Hindu nationalist BJP government is isn't really interested in the people. Um, so for them, especially Kashmiri Muslims, they the plan is to actually get rid of them, exterminate them. Um, and that is what part of the settler colonial project looks like. So I think now we will see, um, I mean, I think the army presence is still going to be there, but in addition to um, the settlers that come in, the settlements that are built, and things like putting Kashmiris in concentration camps or internment camps or de-radicalization camps, which an actual Indian army major himself has said, right, that young Kashmiris who are resisting, we can just put them in de-radicalization camps, um, very similar to what China is doing. So I think that is how some of that project may may shift towards that. Um, again, just thinking through how all of these different countries um, borrow from each other and learn from each other. Um, I just want to add to that, that uh, it's, it's true um, to a large extent that the military was more focused on the line of control, which is the border in Kashmir between India and Pakistan. Uh, but there were um, large camps, you know, military camps uh, in, in Kashmir at that time. I mean, when I was growing up as a child, you would see soldiers um, going in bazaars and stuff. Uh, uh, in Srinagar, the the Badami Ba camp is one of the largest camps. In Srinagar city itself, there were like so many uh, you know, camps, uh, in, including the infamous uh, Bemina Batamalu camp, um, uh, who were responsible for burning down parts of the city at that time. Um, what happened in 1990 is that the Indian government basically uh, picked a large chunk of that military and uh, pushed them into civilian spaces as counterinsurgency force. Um, in Kashmir, they call them the Rashtriya Rifles or National Soldiers. Uh, or na- national rifles um, for a reason because they are highly nationalist force. Uh, they act uh, instead of acting like a professional army, they act like uh, uh, really like a, a mercenary paramilitaries who go out, um, uh, bomb houses, you know, uh, attack women, children, um, beat up people, torture people. Um, so they have been kind of, uh, there's a law called Armed for Special Powers Act, which was introduced in 1990, uh, July 1990, 
uh, which allowed these forces to basically drop the normal uh, code of conduct or, or, and protocols, and they were given immunity from any kind of prosecution. So they could, like, uh, you know, arrest, kill, injure people, or destroy property, you know, take control of property, steal, and without any consequences. So um, what has happened, I mean, and you can see parallels here with... Uh, you know, the historical experience of Native Americans. Um, I mean, I, I, I was reading um, uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, um, which I recommend to every Kashmiri and anyone interested in settler colonialism, the indigenous history of the United States of America, in which she talks about, you know, especially Massachusetts, where these green barrets and, uh, you know, all of these special forces kind of emerged. And these special forces were uh, really not armies, but uh, mercenaries who would go and attack Native Americans, bring uh, their, uh, you know, scalps. I mean, that's where the whole term scalping came from uh, um, and burn down their, uh, you know, villages. Uh, in Kashmir, the Indian government has similarly kind of, uh, and uh, for the last 30 years, created this entire chunk of it, their military and, uh, uh, and you know, other assets uh, who do not uh, believe in rule of law, who do not believe in ethical norms, who do not believe in uh, the norms of professional militaries, um, you know, and uh, who see uh, Kashmiris, Kashmiri lives uh, as totally expendable and who see Kashmir uh, as kind of a real estate that they are going to um, get in return of their services. So recently what happened was the Indian government uh, allowed uh, these uh, some of these troops called the Gurkhas, who actually come from, um, they're actually a sweet group of people who come from uh, Nepal, but the British colonialists and the Indian military after, Indian state after 1947, have specifically trained them to be kind of like these in, uh, imperial stormtroopers. Uh, they use uh, extreme violence, including beheadings and chopping of limbs as a way to terrify civilian population they're trying to subdue. Now, what the Indian government recently did was to give them domicile certificates in Kashmir. They're going to be uh, now uh, buying land in Kashmir, become neighbors of people that they have been terrifying, um, you know, uh, uh, until now. So this is what is, um, you know, really, really important to understand that the Indian military in Kashmir is not like a professional military. It is a mercenary army, which has been uh, over the last 30 years, kind of, um, you know, trained uh, both psychologically, uh, both in terms of seeing Kashmiris as expendable, to turn them into the stormtroopers of settler colonialism. For the Hindu nationalists in India have for a pretty long time said that, you know, uh, the way to subdue Kashmir is to give retire, uh, start retired military colonies which means that once the soldiers retire, they should be able to buy land put, you know, or be settled in Kashmir on government subsidies um, to change not only change the demographic character of Kashmir, but to uh, create a permanent uh, sort of hierarchy uh, and a permanent structure of fear um, within Kashmir. I'm curious, in, in the U.S. context, I think uh, so much of the discussion of kind of like special forces and, and those kind of um, military groups is is mediated through pop culture and the way we kind of justify colonialism through the like, you know, evil Muslim trope. 
Um, and I'm wondering if if there are kind of similar ways pop culture becomes entwined in, in the kind of Kashmiri context. Well, yeah. Um, I can try to answer that. Oh, go ahead, Hafsa. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to, I mean, yeah, it, Bollywood is really India's, uh, you know, Indian nationalism's biggest uh, wet dream because of the role that it plays in pushing out certain nationalist ideals and now even Hindu nationalist ideals. So um, right from India's colonization of Kashmir, Bollywood has played a role historically, um, initially in just kind of creating this desire for Kashmir. It's a beautiful landscape, um, you know, to to allow middle-class Indians to see that landscape as their own and something that they could go to, enjoy themselves in, um, without really any regard or, you know, kind of seeing the local people there as these like innocent, um, ignorant people that they needed to modernize. Um, but once the, you know, once Kashmiris really started to assert themselves and especially in the eighties and the nineties, that trope changed to that of the Kashmiri terrorist. Um, and even now, I mean, you know, pretty much everyone is on board with, uh, Modi's project uh, in in Kashmir and just the kind of images and the circulation of the narratives, like the complete levels of dehumanization that you see in India towards Kashmiris, um, is 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 not shocking, but it's still kind of it enrages you. Um, just recently, there was an image floating around, or there was an image of a um, of a young boy, um, a three year old boy who was photographed sitting on top of his dead grandfather. Um, this happened just a few days ago, where basically um, there was an encounter between armed rebels and the Indian army. And um, the, the, the grandfather was driving and he was uh, basically taken out of his car by the Indian army and shot in cold-blooded murder. Um, and his grandson who was with him was just placed on his body. And the army or the police officers that were around started taking pictures of the scene to kind of show, um, you know, what was happening. And then later to take the young boy and quote unquote, rescue him from the scene. Um, and then they of course blamed the armed rebels for that, for that killing, even though the family has like very vehemently denied that. Um, and so one of the things that happened after that is a uh, BJP spokesperson, um, you know, shared that picture and just said Pulitzer, anyone or like something like Pulitzer. Uh, and he said that because a few weeks ago, three Kashmiri photojournalists had received uh, the Pulitzer Prize for their photography, especially since August 2019, um, when the lockdown and the siege began. Um, basically, just kind of, you know, just completely mocking that whole uh, award and why Kashmiris got it. And then also just completely dehumanizing um, the body, uh, the body of the deceased man and the and the child. So, I mean, all of this exists in pop culture in India. It's it's like perfectly acceptable to call for the genocide of Kashmiris. Perfectly accept, acceptable to call for the rapes of Kashmiri women on national television. Um, you know, it's it's just it's like totally unchecked, and there's there's nothing that happens um, to those who you know air those views. Um, I just wanted to quickly add as well um, some some things which kind of resonate with uh, these uh, experiences of um, you know other indigenous communities around the world. Uh, you know, uh, Indian government military uh, has 
been allowing Indian soldiers to create these profiles uh, on Twitter, uh, and sometimes under pseudonyms. Uh, and uh, so whenever there is is uh, some kind of a siege operation going on, some kind of counterinsurgency operation going on, these uh, soldiers release information to the um, uh, the IT, which is called the BJP IT cell, and I'll, I'll tell you what that is in a moment. And uh, soon you will see uh, hundreds of Indians commenting, "Yay, go our soldiers! Happy hunting!" You know they use the term "happy hunting" quite often, um, and you can That's kind horrific. of. I just want to say, <laughs> oh yeah, my god. <laughs> Yeah, so this happy hunting trope is precisely what connects the experiences of the indigenous people in the U.S., the uh, the people in Palestine, uh, to the experiences of Kashmir, uh, Kashmiris, because the Indian um, military, the Indian public sphere now sees Kashmiris as animals who need to be hunted, you know, and... Uh, uh, the BJP IT cell is this um, right-wing uh, cyber ecosystem that has been created um, over the last 10 years, which is, uh, I, I think some people probably would know, it's the worst, most uh, Muslim-hating, Islamophobic, um, you know, pro-Trumpish um, kind of like uh, ecosystem anywhere in the world, the largest. And uh, so they are continuously amplifying this image of the special forces who are kind of these lone, not, of course, they're not lone rangers. They go in thousands when they attack, you know, hold up Kashmiri militants. Um, and they are continuously promoting this image of this muscular uh, warfare in, in, in Kashmir. Um, so this is like, of course, like many of the, these things then translate into films and other popular culture um, manifestation that Hafsa was talking about. I I will just say it, it's interesting that you bring up the the kind of you know Twitter replies, right? It makes me think a lot of uh, the Rohingya in Myanmar, right, where you have this this kind of um, you know you know violent violent kind of colonial project that is mediated through social media, where the the populace can express their like popular will towards that violence via like posts and memes and um i i don't know that i have a question but i i hadn't heard that that aspect of of the kashmiri experience but sounds terrible yeah you can you can actually see um you know right after every uh, sort of firefight between militants and uh the indian soldiers the indian soldiers are quick to release photographs of these uh, horrific images of Kashmiri militants, sometimes without their pants, they are deliberately pulled down to um, kind of ter terrify Kashmiris, but also to give this uh, feeling of uh, muscular nationalism to their own constituencies back in India. You know, so uh, these images have been circulating for a pretty long time um, uh, to not only otherize Kashmiris, which has been done historically, uh, but also to uh, kind of give a sense to Indians that we are on top of them. We we will kill them. We'll, we we are we have the capacity to complete this genocide. You know. I wanted to circle back to the gendered aspect of this too, right? Um, I remember back in August when India announced its de facto annexation, 
of Jammu and Kashmir, there was this uptick in calls on social media, like this is the time to get um, for Indian men to think about getting a Kashmiri wife or something like awful like that. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that kind of gendered entitlement and how it works its way into both the occupation and the settler colonial project. Yeah, so um, after after uh, August 5th and after Kashmir's semi-autonomous status was taken away, um, the things that you saw, especially on social media, were related to people just saying, oh, now I can get myself a Kashmiri wife, a fair Kashmiri wife, right? So that's also the trope, um, is that of the fair Kashmiri woman, um, and also of land. Um, so, I mean, just in that, you can just see the levels of entitlement where this is this is sexual violence that's also going to happen or that's also being enabled. Um, and these are government officials, right? These are BJP either party members or leaders that are saying this. And of course, then it also percolates in, in the general masses as well. Um, and India continues to kind of paint the revocation or the need for the revocation as one in which it needed to happen to liberate Kashmiri women. Um, that because of, uh, you know, Article 370, Kashmiri women who married non-Kashmiri men uh, would not be able to hold on to their land or property, which is actually not the case. That was already struck down um, in an earlier ruling. Um, but they continued to paint uh, Kashmiris um, as not just patriarchal, but also as homophobic. So one other thing that they've learned um, is to pinkwash the occupation. Um, a right-wing uh, group uh, very recently came out with posters for holding a Kashmir uh, pride parade in Kashmir. Um, and this is a group that's, you know, praising uh, Hindu Hindutva ideologues like Savarkar on their Facebook pages and denying the rapes um, or violence that was that's committed by the Indian army in Kashmir um, and calling for a pride parade. And again, to paint Kashmiri Muslims as being especially patriarchal, especially homophobic um, in order to justify their, you know, their rule over them. Um, so these are tactics that we see in all colonial strategies, right? A way to dehumanize um, and paint people and the movement specifically, um, and to kind of use these fear tactics of like, well, if you give these people their freedom, uh, they're going to, you know, they're going to build like an ISIS kind of situation or, or whatnot. So um, that has been ongoing for quite some time as well, but is only escalating now. And of course, to add to that, there's no kind of any self-reflection on how India remains one of the most violent and vile places to be a woman. Um, and there's, you know, so much data and statistics to, to back that up. Um, so, yeah. I mean, plus the really absurd notion of like holding something like a pride parade, given the amount of like the checkpoints, the surveillance, like it's just, it completely, you know, as you said, pink washes the reality on the ground. Yeah, I mean, the public assembly have been, uh, public assemblies have been banned uh, since 1990. And even before that, uh, people cannot utter the word Azadi on the streets, uh, you know, which means the word freedom. And how can we talk about uh, the pride marches? Like, you know, you it's just like, and I think that there are a lot of sensible uh, people who understand this um, kind of like the gameplay 
uh, you know, in India, until very recently, the you know, until this sort of change in the law, uh, 377, um, India was uh, India was one of the most discriminatory places against uh, you know um, um, LGBTQ communities. Um, I, I have another question, but Simi, I just wanted to give you a, a chance if you wanted to jump in and ask anything else about the the pink wash. Well, I mean, it's I don't think I have a question there. It's just it's very interesting to me that all these colonial regimes, from Israel's brand Israel uh, um, campaign to like I think like elements of the U.S.'s war on terror, has painted so much of the world as like well you know people are homophobic over there. So the issue is, you know, the way of resolving this issue is like this military force and incursion, right? Um, or like, in this case, like straight up occupation. And it just like, you know, if I think one of the things that uh, I remember in uh, this paper you wrote about countermapping Junaid was like, um, somebody had sort of like staged this sort of like one person sort of protest. They'd been a cabbage walker. I didn't quite understand oh, the detail. I but love that. I yeah. love that. It's amazing. It's so good. But Sorry. I think, yeah, I mean, it's just like if the, and you talked about people, you know, you talked about um, one of the people you had been interviewing uh, was a woman who chose to wear a burqa because of like the gaze of the soldiers, right? Were so, you know, sickening and terrifying for her. It's just the impossibility to me of being an outwardly queer or trans person under a military occupation like that is just very pronounced, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you you can see uh, from 2001 onwards, you know, the, the war on terror when, uh, I don't know, some of you perhaps remember when Laura Bush and uh, Sherry Blair kind of like said that this war, on, uh, war against uh, in Afghanistan is basically liberation for of women and we know what has happened since then um afghanistani afghani women are uh, not that of course i don't uh, you know a taliban were awful to women um but historically uh, you know their situation hasn't changed uh, over the last uh, 20 years uh, any significantly i mean and now the us is leaving that place in kashmir too uh, the indian uh, and and sadly many uh, liberal who call themselves liberal feminists had uh, argued that uh, if Indian army isn't present there, Kashmir will kind of uh, slide down into some kind of an Islamist theocracy. Um, and this is absolute nonsense because, you know, I grew up in Kashmir. Uh, in Islam, religion is part of uh, the faith of ordinary people there and uh, many people practice it differently like um in our neighborhood some women used to wear burqa some women did not uh, wear burqa um but when public spaces became militarized when you had like these men from uh, all these different places in india come in these unfamiliar men uh, you know women found uh, safety uh, in burqas i mean i i can uh, you know narrate one instance um, especially, which kind of highlights this for me. Uh, there's a military camp in the, near my mother's home. It's housed in a cinema hall. And I was walking one day, and this woman who did not have a burqa on, um, she said, uh, son, can you just like walk with me while, until I cross the camp? The road was in front of, the, of this military camp. So as soon as we reached the camp, she put the burqa down and basically covered herself and walked all the way. 
you know and they were and then she once she was uh, done she lifted her burqa again and said hello to other men who were like you know walking down um which is an ordinary practice in kashmir um i mean when you have these soldiers who are like peering at you or continuously gazing at you who are like uh, trying to control you um you know it becomes kind of a defense uh, mechanism and i i'm not going to judge their the or interpret their use of um burqas as either oppressive or you know liberatory i'm only saying that how tactically women use burqas and how it became a common practice because uh, the familiar spaces in kashmir uh, kind of turned into these unfamiliar spaces because of the presence of armed soldiers well it's also just very strike striking to me how much of the colonial situation revolves around just a complete i mean it this may seem incredibly simplistic but like a disregard of for consent right you know not only is your presence unwelcome but this gaze that is entirely unwelcome is constantly being foisted upon everyone yeah absolutely and 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 i think that in in this whole um, you know conversation uh, the uh, many indian feminists have got it completely wrong uh, you know in terms of like understanding the agency of kashmiri women they think of kashmiri women as uh, oppressed i'm not saying kashmiri society is somehow when it comes to gender relations as any other society we have huge problems um, but the indian presence uh, does not help in actually has exacerbated those gender inequalities it has created another layer of vulnerability not to mention the uh, the the, uh, the the kind of experience of um it in in terms of like imagining possibilities of uh, gender equality in kashmir um occupation presents this uh, absurd hurdle um that needs to be done away with you know um as we imagine um you know liberation women's liberation um thank you for that i just wanted to scroll back because i feel like we would be very remiss and i'm going to paraphrase so please correct me if i'm wrong but my my memory of this piece of the cabbage walking was that it was a critique of all this um cordoning cordoning and uh martial law and so this unnamed man is walking as an as a performance art with cabbage on a leash and doesn't carry a visa um and you can correct me if i'm wrong about explaining the anecdote but that really resonated with me because i'm very deeply cynical and i mean here i am like although being black in america in new york in the midst of the twin pandemics of like state sanctioned murder and covid-19 is not exactly privileged like still relatively privileged yet like very cynical um just thinking about like how di modi and the um the alliance between trump and the uh, modi's hindu nationalist regime just kind of represents the like satirical horror story that we are just kind of internationally in solidarity experiencing and so 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 my question is kind of one of the most emotionally impactful uh, stories that was relayed to me from you guys about the situation in Kashmir was the use of lead bullets by the Indian army and that it would embed itself into the soft tissue often um blinding student protesters but not killing them because with killing them it would increase increase further protesting and by blinding them it led to disability which then incapacitated the family who then had to take care um of the of the student who was shot And and with my question there I'm just thinking like 
you know, for you guys consuming all of this media about Kashmir and having, you know, first person experience of the militarization and of death, you know, how do you kind of maintain a discipline of hope or like, you know, or even on the level of tactics, how you explain, Janaid, about, um, you know, wearing the burqa just to avoid the gaze? Like, what are the different sets of um, tools and possibilities that either yourself personally are, are using to make it through this moment or that you want to lift up that people are continuing to do in Kashmir, um, if not for some ultimate possibility of freedom, but to make it through the everyday? Um, and maybe we could start with you, Hafsa, just because I really appreciate that your piece, you know, also relied heavily on oral histories and, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I, so it, the Indian Army does claim that the pellet guns are non-lethal, although it has actually killed, um, it has killed people um, because they, because hundreds of pellets are being lodged into your body, it can dis it can um, rupture your organs, um, and so that has led to killings. Although technically they say that it's a non-lethal weapon, um, but yeah, it has had devastating impact on um, on the people that you know it has blinded and killed and so on. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think your question is a good one, and it's really one that all of us who are personally invested and care about particular struggles, but also see like how multiple struggles are in connect interconnected. It feels like the weight of all of these power structures um, and supremacies can be really overbearing and overwhelming. Um, for me, I guess one survival tactic is just to be in community of like-minded people who um, inspire me and give me um, hope because it, it can feel like, I mean, more and more, uh, it doesn't really feel so isolated anymore. Um, you do feel that you can reach out to people wherever you are who do care, who are as angry and upset at, at um, things that are going on. Um, so I think it's that sense of community that's really important to me. Um, I really resist kind of like these neoliberal logics, logics of self-care. I know that in the past year, especially as I've, you know, struggled to balance work and advocacy work around Kashmir. Um, everyone's just kind of been like, oh, you need to just take a day off and do self-care. Um, and I don't know, there's something about that that like rubs me the wrong way. Uh, maybe it's the fact that the people that we are advocating for cannot even consider the possibilities of self-care. Like, what does that even mean for them living under such context? So why is it a luxury that we ourselves um, can give? But I, of course, do agree and understand that you know, we have to see that this work is not going to necessarily produce immediate results. Um, it's going to be a long, kind of a, a long battle. Um, and you have to be like mentally, physically and emotionally prepared for all of that. Um, and I guess for me personally, as well, uh, spiritual, um, like having a spiritual life and having a spiritual connection um, helps me get through kind of the day-to-day -day as well. So mix of community um, and trying to kind of solidify my own um, spiritual strength to bear with with the onslaught. Um, yeah, so this question of hope is quite interesting to me. And my the source of my hope uh, remains the long history of uh, people in Kashmir and the uh, all the struggling people around the world who have uh, not given up on the idea uh, of equality, of justice, 
in you know in Kashmir, um, we have seen a lot of uh, oppression, both class oppression and uh, foreign oppression, and Kashmiris have sustained uh, through centuries of that, uh, preserving their traditions, preserving their culture, preserving their sense of justice. Um, and even in this present moment, you know, I can uh, I look at the 1990, um, you know, different moments in our in the last century, 20th and this uh, part of the 21st century, like in 1931, when the first mass protest started in Kashmir, Kashmir did not have any literacy at all. We had been forcibly uh, kept out of schools and um, there was no education. In 1947, when the when the country was divided by India and Pakistan, uh, we didn't have uh, much political consciousness. I mean, it was limited to only uh, uh, certain classes of people and, uh, you know, and in 1990, again, when Kashmiris rose up in rebellion, uh, we didn't have uh, writers and poets and artists who could like reach out to the rest of the world. Um, and now in uh, in the last 30 years, despite this tremendous oppression, we have uh, so many people who are writing and explaining their situation to the world, their condition to the world, who are, you know, um, whose poetry is resonating with uh, the experiences of uh, colonized people elsewhere. Um, I, I sense, I see hope in that. And I, I mean, I personally, I, I don't know how I keep calm. Actually, I don't keep calm. I'm continuously at the edge of outrage. Um, I, I mean, I think that uh, I, I wish I could find um, spiritual solace like Hafsa does, um, but I don't have um, any, you know, spiritual solace or any any calm. Really, looking at what is happening every day is like a, a new morning. Every day is it brings news of more death and destruction and uh, of uh, injustice in Kashmir. And I mean, we can only hope that. Um, that there's a future in a in a very near sense where not only Kashmir but entire South Asia emerges out of these uh, terrible nationalisms and militarisms and uh, you know uh, these uh, supremacist uh, ideologies that um, believe in a hierarchical world. You know, I was just gonna say, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I'm not so good at at, at keeping calm. Um, to be honest. Just a lot of margaritas in this quarantine, um, <laughs> <laughs> just to be completely honest. Um, and so one, I mean, I feel like I say this to almost everybody. I definitely feel like there's so much more to talk about. And I would love if we could find another time in August for you guys to come back on the show. Um, but before we go into the wrap up ritual, I was wondering, beginning with Hafsa, do you want to talk a little bit more about what you're currently working on or kind of upcoming things and then you as well, Janaid, and then we can move into our uh, ending recommendation ritual. Sure. Um, I am currently working on my book project. So it's based on my uh, dissertation research from my PhD. Um, I'm on a midterm leave this coming year, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to like writing, especially like a, like a book length thing is, takes a lot, I think, mentally, a lot of your mental energy. And unfortunately, right now, most of my mental energy is spent on what is going on around us. Um, but I'm hoping to kind of take a step back and be able to um, to focus on that because I really do want to get it done um, and be able to kind of move on to another project. So that's that's what's going on with me. No problem, Janine. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
it's it's been really hard to kind of really uh, switch to new research because uh, I haven't really processed completely what I have been doing over the last decade. Um, I mean, I hope to um, you know finish my book project at some point. Uh, soon <laughs> fingers crossed um, but i've been writing um, and uh, writing for a general wider audience than you know small niche academic niches um so uh but i mean my research is moving into newer directions mostly into uh visual politics of um, resistance and uh, occupation uh so that's what is happening at this stage um yeah Cool. So at the end of every show, I think today, uh, since there's five of us, Ilana and I are going to bow out from our recommendations, but maybe starting with our guest host, Simi, if you would like to share anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners, it could be on topic or off. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Actually, give me a minute to marshal my thoughts because there's been a lot to process here. I'd like our, uh, our guests to go first. All right. No problem. Hafsa, Janine. Sure. So I can recommend um, a group of scholars, uh, pe- people in Kashmir studies have put together a syllabus called the Kashmir, uh, the Kashmir syllabus. It's available on um, Stand with Kashmir, the website of Stand with Kashmir. Um, so there are some really incredible recent works, books, article lengths, um, videos, and kind of other resources that people can listen to if they want to hear more about any aspect of what we've talked about and even beyond. Um, so I think that might be a good resource for people. As for me personally, I'm really trying to actually just do some of my own reading um, relating to uh, the state um, and resistance around the world and trying to see how it might inform some of my own analysis. Uh, something interesting that I read really recently uh, was uh, Daryl Lee, um, his book called The Universal Enemy, which looks at uh, fighters, um, Arab fighters um, that went to join the uh, jihad in Bosnia. Um, so just thinking about what transnational solidarities can look like in many different ways. Um, so yeah, so that's just some of my suggestions. Thank you. Um, uh, I already recommended one book. I think it's really essential. Um, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's book. Um, I mean, I recommend it to a lot of Kashmiris as well. I hope they can access it some way and uh, understand what uh, settler colonialism really uh, means, you know, how, what the strategies are put in place to subdue, um, you know, uh, indigenous peoples. Um, I have been like hesitant to recommend textual resources to people uh, lately. Um, I know we are all kind of like, sort of distracted by so much of what is happening and people don't seem to have patience. But if people want to uh, read some short pieces, uh, I would recommend two books. One is called uh, A Desolation Called Peace, uh, which is a collection of short, um, um, you know, uh, essays by Kashmiris. Then another book uh, anthology is called Until My Freedom Has Come. Um, So these are like, capture two different moments, uh, although a part of the same continuity. One is from 2000 and, 
uh, 11, 10, 11, and the Desolation Called Peace is um, more recent in 2018, 19. Uh, but I would highly recommend um, your audience to go back and listen to YouTube perhaps or Spotify or whatever and listen to um, some poetry by Faiz Ahmad Faiz, a famous Pakistani a leftist poet um, who imagined world um, not through the prism of states and their interests, but through the struggles of everyday people. And especially if you're interested, um, do listen to uh, Nayara Noor, this amazing Pakistani uh, singer who uh, you know sings Faz's poetry. It's all on YouTube. That's fire. No, I'm so happy that you recommended that because... I think like what you said is true. A lot of people are feeling tapped out with the reading. I mean, even for us, I think we try to, the structure of the podcast forces us to keep up with reading, but it's nice to have poetry recommended. And now that everybody's in quarantine, like I think people's information science networks are so relational that it's hard to, to, to learn about new things. So I, I really appreciate that last, that last recommendation. But go ahead, Simi. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, so on the sort of like work side, I think it's important to read, at least it's been important for me to read uh, this uh, Bangladeshi journalist, uh, Tasneem Khalil's book, Jalad, The Death Squads of South Asia, because it really also touches on this idea that, you know, the colonial regimes never really ended, and that every South Asian state has used these kinds of paramilitary organizations to establish its sovereignty, their sovereignty and governance. Um, you know, it's, very much a primer. Um, and then in terms of what I read to get away from this, well, I read a lot of horror, um, which, you know, may or may not help. But I'm reading a book right now by um, a British author who's unfortunately no longer with us anymore, Mark Fisher, called The Weird and the Eerie, which is basically, it teaches you how to look at uncanny and strange situations, which, you know, we might reflexively think are horrifying but we can actually examine the um the potentials within them so like you know and i think that's that's relevant because when we look at potentially like hopeless or like desperate situations we need to re-examine them from many angles um yeah that's what i've been reading so far all right cool well that's it this is the we be imagining podcast looking at the intersection of race gender sexuality technology surveillance and much much more um please like us subscribe us share write us back at webeimagining at gmail.com and continue to follow the work of hafsa kandwal muhammad janaid and simi's bylines can be found on truth out uh under the skanda katagama Hi. thank you but thank you. Thank yes, you. that's the end of the episode. We look forward to seeing you next week. Um, we will be having on Dorothy Roberts, Elisa Sangoy, and Aaron Miles Cloud from Movement for Family Power discussing the abolition of the child welfare system. Thanks so much, y'all.